You're listening to audio from Gospel Light Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or support our ministry, please visit gospellight.sg. We are coming back after the sermon last week on the final destination to the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're looking at chapter 8 and finishing up this whole chapter this morning. And it's a passage about giving as you would already know by now. Paul is like a fundraiser. He sees the needs in the church at Jerusalem and seeks to bring support, financial support for his brethren there. This is what the fellow apostles, Peter, James and John, had already appealed to Paul in Galatians chapter 2. Only they asked us, that is Paul and his apostolic band, to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do as well. So Paul began to raise funds for the church in Jerusalem. He now writes to the church at Corinth, telling them about the needs, reminding them that just as a year ago he had apprised them about the situation, they should now seal the deal and complete that collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And you remember two weeks ago, Paul was encouraging the Corinthians via the church at Macedonia the churches in Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea. So Paul kind of raised the Macedonians like that red octopus I spoke about, that example, how they gave in extreme poverty and yet overflowed in generosity and it was marked by great humility. So this morning, we're going to see how Paul begins to answer potentially questions that they may have. He says in verses 10 to 11, please get this done, all right? And in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. You guys got the ball rolling about a year ago, but I don't think it is quite complete as yet. So please get this done, he's saying in effect. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Now, he has therefore encouraged them via the example of the Macedonians and supremely or explained to them how they have personally tasted the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So he says, exercise this uh, privilege, this benefit that you have to give to the poor right now. Now, I think Paul is kind of anticipating some potential questions. Questions like, exactly how much should we give? Should we give like the Macedonians did, that they gave beyond their means? Do we need to give everything? What is the goal of our giving? I think Paul is going to answer questions on affordability. Questions like, how much? Questions like, do we give all? Questions like, what is the ultimate aim or end game for our giving. I think Paul also in this passage that we are going to look at this morning is going to look into the question of accountability, not just affordability, but accountability. How will we know that the funds we give to you, Paul, and your apostolic band will exactly go to the church at Jerusalem? So we are going to look at a Q&A, as it were, on financial giving. 
It's not a long sermon. I think it's a very simple, in fact, I think unusual sermon in that it is more about practical instructions than anything. So I don't think we're going to stay very long. Uh, maybe good news for those who are hungry, but uh, let's see how long we'll take. All right, Q&A on financial giving. The first question is really taken from the verses in 12 to 15 as to the issue of affordability. How much should we give? Probably, <laughs> Paul having explained or used the example of the Macedonians, they uh, anticipate the Corinthians being afraid. Wow, you mean we have to give beyond our means? We have to give until we are like the Macedonians? Is that what we are expected to do? I think Paul seeks to answer that right here. For if the readiness is there, if you guys really want to give, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So the principle he lays down is giving is not trying to compete or to match another person or another church's giving. Yes, the Macedonians gave amazingly. Out of extremity, they gave with an overflow of generosity. They gave beyond their means. But this is not the demand that is placed upon you, Corinthians. You are to give according to what you have and not what you do not have. In other words, I do not want you to take a loan to give to the church at Jerusalem. You do not need to do so. It is accepted. It is acceptable. It is pleasing to God according to what a person has. So we do not compare one with another. We do not say, oh, you gave X amount of money and therefore we or I will also have to give a similar amount because we are given different amounts to begin with from God. All right, Paul, you're saying we don't have to give like the Macedonians did. We give according to what we have. We are not competitors. We are not trying to match that. But what do you mean by give according to what we have? Does it mean I have to give everything? I think Paul says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. In other words, giving is not to that degree where, giving to the church at Jerusalem here, is not to the degree where you give all that you have until you have nothing left. Let's be clear. I want you to give to, in such a way that there are Burdens are eased, but that you are not overly burdened yourself. So that's an interesting principle. Because there may be some who feel like giving should be heroic. I give until I have nothing left for myself. Paul says that's not what I'm saying here. All right? I don't have to give like the Macedonians did in terms of absolute amount. I don't have to give all that I have. I do need to have some for my own survival that I will not be burdened. But what's the goal of giving? How much should I give? To what degree? What's the end game of giving? Paul says, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. So it seems here the fairness is not with regards to absolute net worth or the amount you have or the economic level that you have. But the fairness here is about meeting needs. So nobody, I think, 
throughout Christianity has this thinking that giving has to be to the degree every single one of us have the same amount of money in our bank account. Because if you really believe that, then today you better sell your property, your car, or your possessions, and then we pool all our money together and we divide equally amongst God's people. Some of you will immediately leave gospel light, I believe, if, if that's the rule. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that there should be an equity, a fairness with regards to meeting needs. In other words, it would be grossly wrong if there are brethren in church who are struggling to make ends meet whilst you are living it up because you are very wealthy. Now, there's nothing wrong for you to possess wealth. There's everything wrong if you want to be rich. But there's nothing wrong if God has given you wealth. But that wealth should not be held at the expense of another brother or sister struggling to make ends meet. So there should be that equality in terms of supplying needs. But this, let me say this again, is not saying all of us should have absolutely the same economic level or the standard of living, if I may say. So Paul says this is God's plan. This is God's will. That at this point of time, you Corinthians, you have access, you have ability to give. So you should supply their need. That's God's will. That in the church, in His universal body of the church, brethren should supply one another so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Now, people often ask, what is this talking about? Is, are you saying, Paul, that the Corinthians should now give to the Jerusalem church so that the Jerusalem church may give back to the Corinthians one day? Possible. That may be what Paul has in mind. We do not know what the future will hold, but at this point, the Corinthians are wealthy, they support the Jerusalem church, but maybe years down the road, the Jerusalem church may support financially the Corinthian church. And that's God's plan. That may be one way to look at this. We do not exclude that possibility. But another way people have spoken about this is, at this point of time, Corinthians, you supply the financial, physical needs of the, of the Jerusalem church, but today, they may be supplying your spiritual needs in prayer and in thanksgiving as well. So, I don't think we can be very clear exactly what Paul is saying. Probably both. Probably one of them. But the point is, God intends the church, the brothers and sisters in Christ, to meet one another's needs. Then Paul says in verse 15, as it is written, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, this is taken from Exodus 16, the story of manna, and how God supplied two million people through the wilderness for 40 years via the raining down of manna. And it was an ample supply every single day. That people's needs were well met, no one went hungry, they all had enough. So, whoever gathered, gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. The idea here is that God supplies your needs. 
But I think Paul links it here in the realm of giving because he's saying God does supply needs. But in the Old Testament times, during the Mosaic times, God supplies their needs directly from heaven. But in the New Testament, God supplies for people's needs, the brethren's needs, via the church. So it is our responsibility and indeed our privilege to be used by God to supply our brother's needs. I think that is what Paul is saying when he quotes Exodus chapter 16. Now, there may also, this is the tough part, right? There may also be that hint that Paul is saying here, don't you hoard. Don't you accumulate to such a degree you neglect the needs of your brethren. Because whatever the Jews tried to accumulate during the days of Moses, they melt away when the sun comes up. If not, worms were bred and it stank. So manna was not meant to be kept. Manna was meant to be consumed for this day and tomorrow God will supply. So Paul may be using this illustration to say, you guys, do not hoard your wealth. Now that there is a clear need in Jerusalem, God's will is to use you to supply their needs. Whatever you try to hoard for yourself will melt away or they will grow worms and stink. So, recognize that God wants to use you to be a steward to meet those needs. So in these few verses, having explained about the Macedonian giving, Paul understands that there may be questions about affordability. I want to give to the Jerusalem church, but I can't give like the Macedonians. How much should I give? Paul says, as to the amount, you give according to what you have and not what you do not have. It's quite okay not to compare with the Macedonians. It's quite okay for you not to take any loans, give what you have. All right, if I were to give what I have, Paul, does it mean I have to give everything? Do I have to give all that I have? Paul says, no, <laughs> I'm not asking you to give to such a degree that they are eased and you are burdened. But there should be an equality, there should be a fairness that you will supply their needs. And the aim of giving is not that we will all have the same amount of money in our bank, but that we all will have needs met. Because that's how God, in the New Testament economy, meets the needs of His people through the church. And if you are trying to hoard for yourself and are tight-fisted, even though your brother is struggling financially, well, whatever you have is not going to last anyway. It's going to melt away and it will stink, and it will rot someday. So I think with these few verses, Paul addressed the question on affordability. The next question is something that we don't usually talk about in church, but it's in Scripture and it's important. And it's the issue of accountability. Uh, this is important, right? How do you know, Corinthians, that the money you give will go right to the recipients and nothing is siphoned off to our own pockets. How would you know that none of these funds will be used for our own selfish purposes or it may be embezzled? 
As I've said, there are lots of scams in the world today, and I, I've, you know, this is one of the Facebook pictures I saw. I told you about the, the scam I almost got into. I said, wow, so nice. How much? Huh? Actually, very cheap. Leh. Not, not very cheap, but for Wagyu beef, it's cheap. Uh, $100 per kilo. Well, that's a, that's not, not a bad deal for Japanese Wagyu. I almost ordered it until I smelled something fishy. They also sell fish, so smelled something fishy and, and uh, messaged. And as you know the story, I, I did not go through with it. And within a day, that Facebook page is taken down. And, and then actually over time, after I've given that example, I noticed the same web pages or Facebook ads being sponsored and floating up on my Facebook feeds. And, uh, well, it was confirmed that this was all a scam because it was e even reported in mainstream news that victims were scanned of $20,000 trying to buy durian wagyu beef from online platforms. Their modus operandi, very simple, get to you via your Facebook, via your WhatsApp. Uh, once you send money to them via PayNow, they block you from their messages. And after one day or two, the webpage is also taken down. And they repeat that cycle using different guises, different names, different company names, and so on. So be careful, all right? But because we live in a day where we are surrounded by scams, People call you, hi, I'm from ICA. People email you, you have a package waiting for you, you need to give me your details. We are very cautious. And perhaps rightly so. But scams and frauds and embezzlements can also take place in a supposedly safe environment like the church, like religious organisations. Recently, this is really sad, because this was reported in the Straits Times. This is not in Christian websites or articles or magazines. This is on Straits Times that the Hillsong Church is under probe after claims of misuse of church funds. I do not want to speak too much about Hillsong or Brian Houston, but it is just an example to say scams or misuse of funds can be true or even alleged in the church, in religious organisations. In Singapore, we are familiar with this man uh, years ago. You remember his name? You don't remember, it's okay. All right. Uh, well, this man, uh, okay, his name is there actually. Shi uh, Mingyi, he is found guilty of frauds and uh, he was sentenced to 10 months in jail for his misdemeanour. Not just himself, but uh, a Catholic priest was sentenced to seven years in prison for embezzling about $3 million of church funds. That's a lot of money in those days, 2004. And of course, probably most well-known and infamous today would be the case in City Harvest, the round-tripping of funds. So, money is a very strange thing. It has a particular allure to men. And because it is so seductive, it is very dangerous and it opens a lot of people and churches to crimes and sins and embezzling of funds against God. So in the light of that, Paul talks about 
this accountability in verses 16 to 24. It's a long verse, but a long passage, but I, I don't think I'm going to run through it verse by verse. It may not be necessary that way. But I go straight to the heart of the matter. Verses 16 to 24 revolves around this simple principle is given in verses 20 to 21. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honourable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. Two sentences or two phrases stand out to me, that no one should blame us. And we provide what is honourable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. You ask, why does Paul write so much in verses 16 to 24? I think it is to bring a proper address to these two phrases. Paul is saying, in effect, we do not, in our collection of funds, in our handling of this generous gift, as we steward this money that you give us, we do not allow for any space for people to have reasonable doubt or allegation as to mishandling. Now, of course, Paul says, I will not mishandle the funds. We will not mishandle the funds. That is clear. But that's not the point. Paul is not saying, I will not. He's not defending the honest handling. He's saying, we will make it clear that there is also no reasonable space for doubt or allegation. It will be seen so clearly that there is no way anyone can accuse us. That's his point. So he doesn't just say, you know, God knows. <laughs> God knows my heart. God knows our intent. God knows we have not lined our own pockets. But he's saying we do implement clear, transparent, honest and accountable processes. It's not just saying, don't you trust me? But Paul says it's got to be obvious and open also in the sight of men. So, this is his principle. There must be open, transparent, honest, clear process when it comes to money. Because money is a seductive thing. And we do not want anyone to accuse us of mishandling and shame the name of Christ. That's the principle. What's his process? How does he go about ensuring that there is transparent, open, clear, accountable process? Actually, very straightforward. He talks about how there were three good men who will oversee the Corinthian collection. The first man is Titus, someone the Corinthians are very familiar with, uh, someone who visited the Corinthians in the absence of Paul, and he says, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you of his own accord. So Paul says Titus is the one who wanted to help out with this Corinthian collection. And Titus is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. You know Titus, you know what kind of a man he is. He is the first of the three who will be responsible to oversee the Corinthian collection. The second man is an unnamed brother. There are people who try to identify who this person is, speculate here, speculate there. The end result is nobody knows for sure who he is. 
At least we do not know, but I'm sure the Corinthians know. But let's call him the unnamed brother. And Paul says, with Titus, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. So this man, though unknown to us, is not unknown to the Corinthians. He's famous. Famous not for his wealth, famous not for his smarts, but famous for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us. So this man is publicly appointed by various churches. So obviously, someone respected, trusted, and that's how he describes this unnamed brother. And finally, in verse 23, as for our brothers, they are messengers for the churches, the glory of Christ. The third man is also another unnamed brother, so we will just call him another unnamed brother. Uh, and what is spoken about him is that we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested, found earnest, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. He's always very zealous to help in this, and now even more zealous to help because they, he knows you are ready to give. And again, in verse 23, the same, I think, description will be applied to this another unnamed brother. So the principle here is, you need a few men. What is an accountable process? You need at least a few men. It cannot be an accountable process if it's only one man. You get that? Very simple. When it comes to money, it cannot be just given to one person and that one person handles all the funds, it is extremely dangerous. Not just, oh, we trust you, la pastor. Please, uh, if you have any money, please don't pass to me. <laughs> I think this is a very dangerous thing. I, I, I kind of make it a, a wish or principle of, in church that I would want to handle as little of the financial transactions or money in church as possible. It's just to, I guess, protect the office of the senior pastor. You do not want him to be exposed to such dangers or temptations. But the point is, when it comes to money, it cannot be just one man. You cannot just say, we trust our pastor. It's unhealthy. You open that person up to accusations. And even if he's honest, he has not mishandled, he has not embezzled, you're just opening him to possible accusations. Because people can say, how would you know that he did not embezzle? And that is enough to create a headache already. But there must be, I think, two or three witnesses involved. Very simple process, a few men. But let me add on, because Paul labours to say, it's not just a few men, it's not just Tom, Dick and Harry. But he says, it's a few faithful men. Men who are famous for preaching the gospel, men who are tested and proven, men who are reliable, men who are publicly endorsed. So these are the kinds of people uh, that are needed to the handling of funds. So the principle is give no blame, provide things honourable, not just in the sight of God, but very importantly, in the sight of men. People can see this is an open, transparent, accountable process. And to implement this, you need a few men, and if I may add, a few faithful men. The question now is, how do we do this in our church? 
because funds are given. Let me say this. Uh, when you give electronically, it's a lot easier. <laughs> uh, but the traditional way of giving is cash. And so when you give cash here, there is a need to make sure the process is safe, is, um, if I may say, not vulnerable to embezzlement. So how do we do this in gospel? Like whether it's the collection of funds or the giving of funds or the handling of funds. So let me just, I don't think I'll ever get to say this anymore. Uh, so this is the only sermon we'll get to deal with this, so might as well, right? The church processes, this is for us in Gospel Light. I'm not saying this is for every church, but the principle is, I think, what every church would have to adhere to. But what we do here in offering collection when it comes to physical cash, dollars, bills, is this. After service, this sounds a bit boring, but <laughs> just bear with me once, all right? After service, two ushers will be stationed at each offering box placed at the exits. You do know now that we do not hand out offering bags since COVID. There are people who have asked, can I give? I say yes, but you can only give as you exit from this place. There will be boxes outside where you can drop your offerings in. At the end of the service, the offering boxes are locked in a luggage bag. The reason is because we have two services. So after the first service, it is locked in a luggage bag. And you say, well, locked then? What if someone knows the lock? Well, the luggage lock combination is only held by the head usher and the team leaders. An usher who does not know the luggage combination will stand guard at the luggage. So that's how it is, right? You've you got to have someone watching. It's got to be, you, we cannot leave it at the back. Lah. And then someone major. So someone must watch over this at all times. But this person does not know the luggage lock combination. Makes sense, right? If he knows, he can go toilet with it and you do not know what's going to happen. But he will stand guard in between the services and then pass on the duty to a second service usher who also will not know the combination. The team leader and then this other usher at the end of the two services will then bring the offering box up to the counting room where there is a CCTV. And there, they will wait together until at least two members of the counting team would arrive. And then they will empty the contents of the offering boxes for counting. So this is the process from your giving at the offering boxes to the place of counting. Now, offering counting, what happens? Uh, there must be two members of the counting team and one witness, usually the treasurer or the assistant treasurer, before counting can commence. And counting team members must be members of our church. After the counting is done, the amount is stated and so on, these funds will be locked up in a safe and the safe can only be opened with... Why do you lock up in a safe? Because the bank is not open today. And you also do not want anyone to bring the money home. That would be disastrous. So we lock up in a safe and uh, it can only be opened with the key and passcode and the key and passcode are held by two different people. Uh, of course, it cannot be held by the same person. Uh, accountability, right? Two or three. 
and then we will deposit at the bank and offerings to be brought to the bank for deposit by two unrelated staff. Again, we need that countercheck and balance. Now, that's about the collection of funds. You, you notice if you give online, uh, all these things <laughs> are bypassed, right? Because it's straight to the bank account. But because uh, there are still people who prefer to give physical cold hard cash, that's fine as well. This is already in operation since the church began a long time back. Of course, we have fine-tuned the SOP, but that's what it is in a nutshell. When it comes to the release of funds, this is a simplified version. There will be a requesting person, so a claimant would raise a claim. But just because a claimant raises a claim doesn't mean the money goes straight to him. There must be, number one, a countersigning person. Uh, that is a staff... Uh, in the same or relevant department who is in the same or higher position as the requester, or if unable, the, then the staff from another department who will fulfil the already mentioned condition. So it must be counter-checked that this is a genuine claim. And then number three, there must be an approving person, uh, same or relevant head of department, or if unable, then another head of department. So there must be that verification that this is a legitimate claim before the money can be released. Besides that, in our church, we have finance subcom. Uh, they are people who will provide advice on the finance matters and oversee the church finance policy and SOP. Now, your pastor is horrible with these things. And I gladly acknowledge my inadequacy in this area. But there are brethren in this church who will focus on looking at fiscal accountabilities. Finance.com is a group of brethren who will look into this. We also have internal auditors who will look through our books. Besides internal auditors, we employ an external auditor, someone who is not from the church, to also look at the transparency and accountability with regards to finances here. And of course, there's also the Commission of Charities. This is from the government to provide spot checks. Every year, we give an update of our fiscal positions uh, in our ACM. By the way, ACM is coming up next Saturday morning. All right, so this is, of course, for members only, but we provide a status updates, and this is the way we also want to keep ourselves accountable. So that's what accountability, I think, can look like. I don't think we have the perfect system. Uh, our finance com will look into how we can better ourselves each time, uh, but that's what Paul is saying. There must be a principle. The principle is no space for reasonable doubt or allegations. The process is usually a few faithful men or women. And the prophet What's the benefit of addressing this issue? It is this. Paul, having settled or dealt with their questions, then confidently, I think, appeals to them, so, in the light of the clarity on affordability and accountability, guys, give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. I hope Paul says, I've answered your questions. I've helped you see the example of the Macedonians. I've reminded you of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I hope you will be willing to give. And I've also, in this passage, 
supplied you with the wisdom to give. Wisdom as to how much? Wisdom as to know that these are in safe hands, not just in the sight of God, but in the sight of men. So, give proof of your love and supply the needs of the brothers there. If you're here with us for the first time, and you're saying, well, this church is very money-minded, or every day talk about money. I say not every day, or only these few weeks, because we're going through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But I want to say to you, whilst giving financially is not the main message of gospel light, the gift of God, Jesus Christ, is the main message of gospel light. If you're here with us and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Saviour, I want to ask you to receive this gift from God. Because we are all sinners who are guilty before God, who are sinful before God, but this generous, amazing God has chosen, while we are yet sinners, while we are absolutely unworthy, to send His Son to die and to pay for your sins. I pray today you will turn, repent, and believe in Jesus Christ that you may be saved. Let's bow forward of prayer together. Father, we thank you today that you are the absolute generous giver. You gave not to nice people, you gave not to people who love you, but you gave to a people who are your enemies. You gave to a people who do not want you, in fact, rebel against you. But because of your amazing love and grace, you chose to sacrifice your only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He might be the sacrificial lamb to take away our sin. Thank you, Jesus paid it all. All our sins, past, present, future. We are made righteous because Jesus was made sin for us. So we thank you, dear God, for this amazing gift of forgiveness and salvation. We pray for our friends who are gathered here, that they will one day see their absolute spiritual poverty, will recognize that they are absolute bankrupts, that they can never earn their way to you, and that they will then humble themselves at the foot of the cross to look to Jesus, to believe upon Him that they might be saved. And this morning I pray for our church, that we will recognize that whilst you have blessed us much financially, they are never meant to be hoarded for our selfish greeds. Because like that manna, tomorrow it will melt away. Tomorrow it will breed worms and stink. Help us to recognize that we are to be stewards. We are to be the ones who will dispense of your goodness to those who are needy around us. Help us to realize it is such a privilege to be a blessing to our brothers because of what you have given to us. So I pray that we will today learn and contemplate more 
upon our stewardship in this world. We pray that we will be generous givers to the needy around us. We pray that in so doing, needs of our brethren will be met and that your name will be glorified. Lord, we thank you for good men and women in our church to ensure that fiscal accountability so that there will be no blame, so that there will be no accusation. And I pray, dear God, you will preserve this church from frauds and embezzlements and shameful things that will hurt the name of Christ. We pray that we would have the ability to be blameless and beyond reproach in every way so that we may have our attention focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So once again, thank you for this morning. We pray your word will find good soil in all our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name.